you know that. So we can start the recording now. It doesn't have to be on the tape. Yeah, as uh, Yana said, we're starting off the Reformation series today. Um, I think we had the graphic up there a moment ago. Uh, it's a new series, and um, as Yana said, we're doing this series in all of the services here at Calvary Chapel Freiburg, so across all the services on Wednesday evening, Sunday morning, and Sunday evening. So you guys are kind of last in the queue. Um, this, this, um, this message started last Wednesday uh, because we think that um, it's good to mark the, fifth, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, um, to look back at what God did back then, and we want to um, make sure that the, the, the legacy, the theological, biblical legacy of the Reformation um, is applied to the whole of the, the Calvary Chapel community, so including uh, Church at Five. So, yeah, it's good to have you on board. So to start off, we're um, starting today with Sola Scriptura. And I just thought, before we get into that, though, that um, as Christians in Germany today, and I don't know how many of you are Germans per se, or you might be internationals here, but certainly um, there, is, uh, there, there are cases where as Christians we might have a slightly uncomfortable relationship with the concept of the Reformation, depending on our background. Um, for example, you might come from a country like Ireland, where the Reformation is obviously associated with Protestantism and therefore with a, a kind of um, an overbearing colonial power like as in Great Britain. That's Ireland, but we're not in Ireland, we're in Germany here. So I'm thinking, maybe you think, why do we have to go over these fights in the past, these, these conflicts, which were not only theological, as you would know if you studied up on history, they later turned into political and military conflicts. We certainly live in an age of, like, we like to avoid conflict, I think, even though there's a lot of conflict around the world. We, we, we tend, the spirit of our age is kind of towards oneness and unity and, and that kind of thing. So I understand if people think, why do we have to kind of rehash the old debates of the past? Um, but I think it's important. So I think it's important at the start to say that um, we're talking, as we go through this series, we're talking about the situation as it was uh, in the church uh, 500 years ago. And it's important to say that there are differences between the Roman Catholic Church that emerged after the Reformation and, the, and uh, responded to the Reformation and the Roman Catholic Church of today. And, to, and to, just to illustrate that, I think that's important to note because we will be critical of some things in the Church uh, in the past. Let me just read to you a statement made by uh, Pope Francis when he spoke at a church service in Lund that's in southern Sweden, in October last year to kind of kick-start the Reformation year. So it's kind of an unthinkable thing in, its, in itself that they kind of invited the Pope to kick off the Reformation year. Swedish people, you know, Ikea. So, but listen to what Pope Francis said. He says, this is what he said, the spiritual experience of Martin Luther challenges us to remember that apart from God, we can do nothing. How can I get a propitious, that is a merciful God, this is the question that haunted Luther. In effect, the question of a just relationship with God is the decisive question for our lives. As we know, Luther encountered that merciful God in the good news of Jesus, incarnate, dead, and risen. With the concept, by grace alone, he reminds us that God always takes the initiative prior to any human response, even as he seeks to awaken that response. 
The doctrine of justification thus expresses the essence of human existence before God. That's Pope Francis of the Roman Catholic Church. So it's important to note when we speak here about the history that the Roman Catholic Church of today is different to the church as it was 500 years ago. And I'm not sure if that's important to you. There may be people here with a Catholic background. It's important to mention. That's not to say that, um, that the Roman Catholic Church has abandoned all its positions of 500 years ago. Uh, it hasn't, but it's important to, to, to see where change has also happened in the Roman Catholic Church. But as we go through this, I also want to refer to the church 500 years ago as the church and not the Roman Catholic Church, because back then there was only the church, and everyone was in the church. It was everyone's church. And I think that's an important thing for us to, to take away from this series, and hopefully from this message. This might be new for you, but we want to look back on church history and see that it's our history. Kind of if you have, if you have a family and you look back on your family history, it's all your family or maybe when you go home for Thanksgiving or Christmas, everyone's sitting around the table, you're like, that's all my family. Sometimes it's harder to get along with other people, or with, with some people in your family than in other people, with other people, but they're all your family. They all belong to you. And church history is the same way. It's our history, and we can't just you know, cut out the bad bits or the bits we don't like. It's a bit like that in the Old Testament with, um, with Israel. If we go through the Old Testament... There are good kings and there are bad kings, but we don't cut the bad kings out uh, of the Old Testament. Uh, Manasseh, probably one of the worst kings, he sat on David, on King David's throne. He sat in the line of David. He's, a, he's, a, he's one of the descendants of Christ. And we have to take history as it is. So we want to look back and say, this is, this is our history. It's not, it's not kind of we were always on the good side and they were bad. If this is our history, we have to take the good and the bad, and see how God works in history. And so just by reading that statement from Pope Francis, I hope that we'd also be thankful for the work that has gone on in the Roman Catholic Church uh, until now, after the Reformation. However, having said all that, we do need to acknowledge that especially during the High Middle Ages, so we're talking the time from 1200 through 1500, I call the High Middle Ages, that um, many precious truths from Scripture... So from the Bible, but not only uh, the Scripture, that's important to remember um, when we talk about the Reformation, we're not talking about the invention of something new, we're talking about the Reformation, the going back to reform something in light of what happened earlier. So many truths from the Scriptures, but also these were truths that they were in the Bible, but they were also lived out in the early church, not just the church of the New Testament, but the centuries after that that were... That were um, believed by the church father, so-called church fathers, the early theologians of the church. So from, from all of the ancient church, these truths had been forgotten in the high middle ages, distorted, marred, it's another word for distorted, or even denied. And they'd been denied not by every single Christian in Europe, not by every single parish church here on the continent, but rather by a corrupt and unhealthy and abusive church hierarchy. And that's what Luther came to find out. And through the Reformation, this is the important thing, we, we, we will be looking at some history, because it's good to know the history of our family, of our people, as they go back through the ages, even the, the good and the bad. And it's also encouraging to see in history how God uses fallible, imperfect people, people who make mistakes, people who make big mistakes, people who get big things wrong, those are the kind of people God used 
to bring the Reformation to Europe and, and with it to the world. And that's, as I say, encouraging for us because I think we all, we hopefully all are aware of our own mistakes, our own weaknesses. It's important to see that in history, God keeps using people like us, people just like us. There's, we're not ruled out from being used by God. And God used these people to bring back through the Reformation many of these truths that had been forgotten, that had been denied, so that they were put back to their rightful place in the church. And this might just seem so far away, but we have to remember these are truths that we kind of take for granted today. When we kind of go into a, a free church, like this one, independent uh, church, these are kind of the things that we think, that we expect, um, that we're used to, uh, so much so that they often become kind of mundane for us. And that's a sad thing. And it's good, therefore, to look back into a time when this wasn't so, when people really had to fight even to have the Bible in their own language, even being caught with the Bible in the local language of German or English or French during parts of these times was a capital offense that you could be put to death for. So many of these truths were reclaimed, rediscovered and returned to a rightful place at the time of the Reformation. It was also a period of renewal and reform, revival, lots of creative theological work going on, church revitalization. And I think for anyone who wants, we just sang it uh, before, that there are greater things yet to come, greater days yet to come, things yet left undone in our city, in our time. If anyone who's interested in that kind of thing, really interested, not perhaps just in singing the song, great song, by the way, guys. Yeah, good song. Um, then we have to look back in history and see how God has worked at these kind of times before. There have been more than one reformation in that sense uh, throughout the history of the church. And there are things about the Reformation that, that can help us maybe be working even today because many of us long for renewal and reform here in Europe today. But in this series, we've distilled um, the five main emphases of the Reformation and they're well known as the slogans of the Reformation. We know them in Latin and then, then they're translated into English. And so I'll just go through them quickly because they're the ones we're going to be looking at this Sunday and then the coming five Sundays. So we're going to be looking at sola scriptura tonight. That is by the scriptures alone. Sola fide next Sunday. That is by faith alone. Sola gratia the Sunday after that by grace alone. Solo Christo through Christ alone. And soli Deo gloria to the glory of God alone. That's in four weeks' time. And then the week after that, we'll actually take a look at the future of the Reformation, um, where, where, it's, where we're headed after that. So those are the coming uh, five weeks. And these were like the clarion call of the Reformers during the Reformation. Their, 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 their doctrines, their teachings, their, their protests were, could be coalesced, as it were, into these slogans. And so each of these slogans rallied against, or railed against sorry, a distortion of the, of the corrupt hierarchy and system at the top of the church at that time. It just, something that had been distorted, marred, denied, or forgotten. And so it put the reformers at odds with the church power structures of the time. But we confess here, and I think that's been borne out in the, in the history of the last 500 years, where we've seen what's happened in light of the Reformation. Just as a, as a, as a side note, the... Um, Kind of this, this, the one slogan summing up the Reformation, as it were, is post tenebras lux, which means after darkness, light. 
And I think that's what we can see if we look back in the history of Europe. There was a darkness at the end of the High Middle Ages and God brought much light through the Reformation. And so we confess that each of these slogans, these calls, is faithful to the Word of God. Faithful not only, of course, to the Word of God, but it's faithful to the ancient church, the way Christians had lived before this time. It wasn't an invention, it was a reformation, reforming something according to the ancient template given to us by God's Word and the early church. And so we think here that it's God's desire that we understand these truths, um, that, we, that we know a bit, about our, a bit of our history on the one hand, of our people, uh, but also know the, these truths which they fought so hard for during the period of the Reformation. Not only that we understand them though, they need to be played out, they need to be lived out in our lives, they need to reform us as well. The reformers weren't arguing um, kind of um, niceties of theology and hoping to just set the record straight on the amount of angels who could be fit on the head of a pin. That was the kind of thing they used to, to talk about in scholastic theology at that time. They had a lot of time on their hands. They weren't arguing about things like that. They were arguing about the core elements of the gospel which should lead to people's lives being changed, not only individual, but individually but corporately, nations being changed. And if we look back in history, nations were changed by the Reformation. God brought much blessing. So each one of these slogans was controversial at the time and is to some extent um, controversial even today. And we're going to be looking at them, as I say, the next five weeks. Because we're coming up to October 31st, um, 2017, the day before All Saints, and that will be the 500th anniversary to the day of the events which people widely regard as the spark that kind of lit the fire of the Reformation. They got it all started, and I'm sure we had it on the picture before, kind of in the background behind the logo there. I'm not sure if it'll come up again. You can see what's going on in the back. There's some theses being nailed to a castle church door in Wittenberg. And that was the day, the 31st of October, Halloween as it were, 1517, that Martin Luther, then just 34 years of age, already a doctor and professor of theology and philosophy, nailed his 95 theses, seeking a debate in the church about some of these issues that we'll be talking about. He nailed them to the castle church door in Wittenberg. From there, they spread around Germany, and that was kind of the, as I say, the spark was nailing them to the door, and then the fire spread around Germany, and you couldn't put it back in the box. You couldn't undo it. Luther's, Luther's points, Luther's doctrine was there to stay. So Luther, we just want to say a few things about his life. He was born in 1483 in Iceland. He, he was destined to become a lawyer. His father worked really hard in the mines so that he might become a lawyer, not have to do that. And I think many of you will know the story. Um, he, he, he had studied law in, in Erfurt, and at the age of 21, so in 1505, he was caught in this famous thunderstorm. There seemed to be a few famous moments, almost like, yeah, like lightning strikes in Luther's life again and again um, that, 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 that reset his course. And this was a momentous thunderstorm for the history of Europe, for the history of the world. Because Luther prayed at that moment to St. Anne, St. Anne being the mother of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And he, and he asked St. Anne to... Um, you know, to, to, give, to say a word to Christ that he might spare Luther's life from this storm, that he might survive the storm. And if he survived the storm, he promised that he'd devote his life to God, he'd give his life to God. And that's what happened. 
Uh, Luther then became an, Al- an Augustinian monk in Erfurt, which is very interesting that he became an Augustinian monk because it was St. Augustine, the famous uh, doctor and, and father of the church who lived back in, uh, died in 354 AD, who had articulated first, uh, or, or had articulated in, in Latin, first the first one to do it in Latin, this, this doctrine of God's grace, God's free gift of grace in salvation. St. Augustine, great guy, interesting life, you should get to know him one time. So it was, it was kind of almost, not ironic, but interesting, it kind of fit that, that Luther would step into the tradition of this doctrine, the doctrine of grace. And we see that God's working here in Martin Luther's life. And I've said this in the other service as well, it's, and I think you can see this from the thunderstorm story. I mean, I, I'm not sure, I've been caught in a few thunderstorms, I'm not sure, I don't know, maybe it's just me living in the modern world that I've ever felt so threatened that I think I need to devote my life to God if just by surviving the storm. Maybe thunderstorms were different back then, or maybe I'm just uh, too arrogant. But in any case, Martin Luther, all his life, had a, had a particular awareness of the reality of God. God powerful, God holy, God eternal. And, and coupled with this kind of awareness of the reality of God, some people go through life almost completely oblivious to the deeper things of life. That wasn't Martin Luther. All through his life, it's even reported in later years when people might have been talking to him, that he suddenly had to leave the conversation and go into his room and kind of weep because he was overcome with his, with his sinfulness on the one hand, his, his, his inadequacy over against a holy, awesome God. This, 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 this awareness never really left him and God used that awareness to drive him to drive Luther on the road to the Reformation because Luther as I said he had an awareness of God but he was also aware of his own sinfulness his own inadequacy and we heard what Pope Francis said that Luther's question was how do I find a merciful God and Luther became driven by this question his concept of God at the beginning of his life even as a monk and we'll see that uh, in a moment, was that God was out to punish him, that God was out to get him, that God was the harsh taskmaster, kind of standing above him with a whip, and if he put one finger out of line, God was going to smash that whip down on his head. That was the view that Martin Luther had of God, and he was a monk. You see, he went in 1510 to Rome, which of course was one of the two holiest cities in the world at that time for Christians, the other being, of course, uh, Jerusalem. He went on a pilgrimage to Rome, but he found no answers to his questions there. On the other, um, instead of finding answers, his faith was devastated by the state of the church that he saw in Rome. He saw um, corruption on a grand scale. He, he, he saw uh, prostitution, clergy, priests, uh, nuns and monks involved in rank uh, prostitution. It completely destroyed his his vision of the church as the city of God. But he had an experience there. He went to the Holy Staircase. And uh, I'm not sure if you've, uh, if you've seen, uh, some of you may have seen the Luther film. This, this experience is also shown in that film. And the Holy Staircase is still in Rome today. It's important to note. Despite everything we said about the Roman Catholic Church at the beginning, this is the staircase uh, where, according to tradition, it was, um, Christ went up these stairs to meet with Pontius Pilate before he was condemned to death. And when, when in Rome, Luther went to this staircase, 
And as was the custom at the time, he crawled up on his knees, stair by stair, at each stair pausing to say the Lord's Prayer and to kiss the ground. And when you got to the top, after having paid at the bottom, uh, you were supposed to receive an indulgence, that is the, 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 um, the um, absolution, the, the, the forgiveness of sin, either for yourself or for a dead relative that would shorten their period in purgatory or shorten your own or absolve your sins up to a certain point in your life. Again, um, still a current doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. And Luther got to the top, and looked around, he saw the other pilgrims, all poor, all crawling up these stairs. And he said he felt nothing. He felt nothing. And he said to have said, he, he wrote later about many of his experiences just in the years before he died, he said, how do I know that all of this is true? He'd gone there as a monk, trusting in the institution of the church, being devastated by what he found in Rome, how the people who were, who were supposedly living lives devoted to God were behaving. He did this exercise, but he said, how do I know it's true? And that brings us to the question of Sola Scriptura tonight. That was the kind of the, um, the, the trigger. How do we know this is true? And Luther wrote about this experience as I said, he was fearful of God. Not only fearful, he said, I, blameless monk that I was. So he's saying, look, I, as to, in terms of monkery, I was a pretty good monk. If anyone was going to get to heaven by being a monk, that was me. That was Luther. I felt that before God, I was a sinner with an extremely troubled conscience. I couldn't be sure that God was appeased by my satisfaction. Satisfaction being the works you would do to appease God. I did not love, no rather I hated the just God who punishes sinners. In silence, if I did not blaspheme, then certainly I grumbled vehemently and got angry at God. You see, Luther's view of God, he feels like he's down on the floor, scrubbing as it were, and God just waiting above him to whip him if he got a tiny bit out of line so luther was obsessed with the question how do i find is this who god really is or how do i find a god who loves me a god who is merciful to me this was luther's obsession and we're lucky that luther had the personality that he had that he literally almost went insane trying to answer this question over a long period of time well as luther's life went on seven years later he took action against the sale of indulgences and um, that's basically what he had himself had bought in Rome, the indulgence being if you complete this task, then the church says a certain amount of your sin is forgiven or a certain time that you have to spend in purgatory is reduced. And he took action against this, by, and that was the occasion for him nailing the theses to the church door, looking to debate this and say, where is this in the Scriptures? Because in the meantime, he'd been allowed to teach the Bible, having first been only allowed to teach Aristotle. He was now allowed to teach the Bible. He saw that the indulgences are not in the New Testament, they're not in the Old Testament either. And that was the occasion for the beginning of the Reformation because I can tell you many people were unhappy with the way indulgences were being used to raise money. But it wasn't until two years later, 1519, according to Luther's own reckoning, that he finally came to understand the gospel, that he finally found an answer to the question, how do I find a gracious and merciful God. And we'll look at what happened to him in the tower at Wittenberg in 1519, probably next week, where he finally, as he was reading the book of Romans, 
finally understood the free gift of God's righteousness through Jesus Christ. Something that we almost take for granted. It's almost become a formula that kind of rolls off our tongue if we're Christians that have grown up in a free church. It took Luther years, years of applying himself to the Bible, years of, of, of yearning to find a gracious, loving God and God's Spirit that got him there. But today, as I say, we start our series with the first truth, the first slogan of the Reformation. That's mainly, that's sola scriptura. And I, I just want to show you the relationship because when we think about sola scriptura, it's ultimately the question at hand is the one of authority. One of authority. Who or what has decisive authority over your life as a Christian? What's the ultimate authority in your life? And for Luther, this became clear as he read the New Testament, as he read the Scriptures, as he discovered, rediscovered the Gospel. He came to realize that God had given salvation as a free gift through Jesus Christ. That forgiveness of sins was not something you had to buy by going on pilgrimage or crawling upstairs or paying for a little slip of paper when Tetzel came round. Again, all things we'll look at next week. You didn't have to do that. God had given it freely in Jesus Christ. And so he appealed to the Pope, thinking the Pope was perhaps unaware of what was going on in Germany with the indulgences. And that's when he was rudely shocked that the Pope, in fact, was propagating this system. And so the issue became this. If the, if the New Testament, if the Word of God clearly says that salvation is a free gift through faith, by grace, and the Pope and the cardinals of the hierarchy at the time say, no, it isn't. Who has to budge? Who is the higher authority? Who is ultimately decisive in authority over Luther, over the Christian? And we listen to Luther, his, probably his most famous words as he responded to this dilemma. Well, he clearly took sides. And he said here at the Diet of Worms, so, yeah, in Worms, obviously. He said these words, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, for I can believe that neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred, that is, made mistakes repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God, Thus I cannot and will not recant, that is, go back on what I've said, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. So he said, if the popes and the councils, meaning the um, councils of the high middle ages, the Lateran councils, he said, if they say one thing and the scriptures say another thing, I'm convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures. That's the, my basis. That's what I'm convicted by, my conscience captive to the word of God. It was not that Luther had denied the authority of the Pope per se, although at this point he, he did, because he saw how corrupt the papers he had become. It was not that he denied that the Pope was any, that had no authority, but he said the Pope must be, must submit to, must be under the authority of of the scriptures must be under the authority of the Bible. If the Pope says something and the Bible says something different, the Pope has to submit to the Bible and not the other way round. And that's the basis of sola scriptura. That's that, that scripture, so I brought I brought a definition here that scripture means that the Bible, 
The Word of God is our ultimate and highest authority as Christians. It stands over all other authorities. In terms of, of, uh, of our faith, that is, what we believe, and in terms of our practice, that is, how we live. The Bible stands over all other authorities as our ultimate and highest authority for all that we believe and all that we do, how we act in our lives. So this means very clearly there is no higher authority. Back in, back in Luther's day, it was the other way around, it seemed, that no matter what the Bible said, there was the, the Pope and the Cardinals stood above it and could say something different. No, we say with Sola Scripture, there is nothing that stands above the Bible as our authority as Christians. There's no other source of authority somewhere else which we can appeal to away from the Bible, which even comes to the same level as or rivals the Scriptures, the Word of God. Other authorities, things like the tradition of the church, how things have always been done, and there's traditions in every church, no matter what their color, no matter what their kind, traditions have a way of just kind of happening as time goes by. Tradition, reason, human reason itself, any individual interpretations that we might have of, of, of uh, the Word of God, and any subjective, obviously, subjective experiences we have in the Christian life. All of these stand below Scripture. Scripture judges our experience. It's not our experience which ultimately has the final say. We have to go with our experience to the Bible. We have to go with our tradition to the Bible. We have to go with what we think uh, things mean to the Bible and let the Bible judge. Let the Bible be the authority. And this comes down to, basically, we believe this because the Scripture and the Scripture alone is believed by Christians to be the very word of God. And Luther himself said at the time, let the man who would hear God speak, read Holy Scripture. Let the man who would hear God speak, or let the person who would hear God speak, read Holy Scripture. Luther recognized what Christians have always believed, that when we read this book, when we open this book, it's not simply, uh, it's not simply human words. These are God's words. These, this is God's word. And so we confess here, at Calvary Chapel, and we, we join with the Reformers, we join with the ancient church, we join with the New Testament church in, in recognizing this as the very Word of God. And that can be a hard doctrine for, um, for some of us in, in times like this. It's important to point out just quickly at this time, this doesn't mean that this word, beca- this is this um, a doctrine associated with neo-Orthodoxy in the 19th century and in the early 20th century, that the Bible can become the Word of God that it's just a book like any other, perhaps recording religious experiences of people in the past, and God can use it as an instrument when he wants. He can turn it into his word. He can make it become his word in a spiritual experience with someone. That's not what we believe. Obviously, we believe God uses the Bible, but we don't believe that until he does it, become, it, it, it isn't the word of God. And nor do we believe that this book somewhere here, somewhere amongst its pages, contains the Word of God, but we have to go through and kind of try and figure out, well, is this bit, is this bit from God? This bit's just an, old, an ancient Jewish myth? That's not what we believe either. Rather, we believe it is the Word of God. And this leads us to the doctrine of inspiration. If the Bible really is the Word of God, then God is its ultimate author. 
We can talk about the doctrine of inspiration another time. If you have questions afterwards, then obviously come and speak to me about how inspiration took place. God used human beings with their personalities in that process. But ultimately we say God is the author of this book. It's inspired by his Holy Spirit. And God, by nature, cannot lie, which is why we say the scriptures are trustworthy and they're true. Let me read to you at that moment um, probably the verse that many of you might have expected to hear today, and in fact you will hear it, from 2 Timothy 3, uh, from verse 14. And Paul writes here to Timothy, um, and he writes obviously concerning the Old Testament, which at that time had been gathered together, and the New Testament was still being written and gathered. And he writes there, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. How from, in- how from infancy, so when you were a young boy, you have known the Holy Scriptures. Listen to what Paul says about the Holy Scriptures. They are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is God-breathed. That's basically the, the basis for the doctrine of inspiration. And is useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And this is such a, um, this can be such a consolation, I think, to many of us. We say because this is the, the word of God, this is also, it's sufficient. It, it, it is the, only the Bible is the word of God and it is completely sufficient as the word of God. We don't need anything else for salvation. So in Luther's time that would have been we don't need the extra doctrines that were imposed as dogma by the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church. We have all we need for salvation. All we need to come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ as the savior of the world. All we need to live a life that's pleasing to God. All we need in the scriptures. We don't have to seek hidden esoteric knowledge somewhere. We don't, as I say, need any extra dogmas imposed upon us. We don't have to, we don't have to live um, in, in confusion about the will of God. We can, we can. We can relax. We have all we need in this book. And any other works, any other revelations that God might give are ultimately pointing us. They're either pointing us to the truth of this work, because we know that we want to test everything else by the word of God, or they're helping us to apply this word of God, maybe in concrete situations. And just, um, just to, I don't want to harp on this point, but I think it's important that we all know this. Because the, the argument is often raised, well, the reformers, they invented Sola Scriptura. No one believed in it before the Reformation. You don't find that in the Bible. You don't find that in the early church. And I think it's important to say uh, that isn't the case. Let me give you um, two quotes from the ancient church to show that this is not the case. This is something the reformers rediscovered. This is always part of the church's understanding. Hippolytus, a guy with a cool name from Rome, he wrote um, in the third century the following words. He said, There is, brothers and sisters, one God, the knowledge of whom we gain from the Holy Scriptures and from no other source quite clear. How do I find out about this one God from the Holy Scriptures? And then Irenaeus, um, a guy from Lyon in southern France, that's where he worked. He was kind of, he was from Turkey though. He says, 
he was writing about false teaching, about people trying to find hidden knowledge, esoteric knowledge back in his day. He says, the heretics, they gather their views from other sources than the scriptures, but we Christians have learned from none others than the scriptures, the plan of our salvation, than from those from whom, whom the gospel has come down to us, which they did at one time proclaim in public and at a later period by the will of God, handed down to us in the scriptures to be the ground and the pillar of our faith. So he's saying we have our truth from the apostles who proclaimed the gospel and a later period, you know, they handed it down to us in the scriptures to be the ground and pillar of our truth, uh, of our faith. So this goes right back to that time that we see that the Bible is no ordinary book. It's not like any other book. It's fixed. It's outside of us. It's unchanging. It's not affected by us. And so it alone as God's word can be our ultimate source of authority as Christians for all the things we believe and all the things we, and how, and how we live in our lives. It's, it's, it's the yardstick. It's the, the measurement against we measure all other things. And Luther called the church in the 16th century, he calls us down through the ages to be radically obedient to the word of God. Not to stand on the side with the extra dogmas of the corrupt hierarchy. Not to stand on the side that we place other things above the scriptures. Not to stand on the side that we're confused and we seek after esoteric knowledge. But to rely on the safe, sure word that is from God. It's important also to say uh, this evening, just before we we close, um, what Sola Scriptura is not. Because there's been a lot of misconceptions about Sola Scriptura. A A lot of people misunderstand it. Um, I was trying to think of good examples. I didn't come up with that with that with great examples, but I want to try and illustrate it um, to you. There are a lot of people who seem to say, if the Bible says it, then I believe it. That settles it, as if it's that simple. But it's in re- as if the Bible is the only authority, not the ultimate authority, but the only authority. And only if I can see it in the Bible, then maybe I'll accept it. But sola scriptura means that the Bible is our ultimate authority, but not our only authority. And the Bible itself gives us other authorities in our lives. It gives us our parents. It gives us the government. It gives us the church. And within the church, there are two authorities. Firstly, the church leadership, but also the authority of the body, where we each have a calling and a role to be speaking into each other's lives, to be encouraging each other, and if, if, if need be, rebuking each other. We have to be submitting to each other. So there are those two authorities in the church. And I, I use them this morning. I think they're really cheap, but I can't think of any better examples now. Um, so I'm sorry. Here they are. We can't say, um, I'm looking around. Yeah, We can't say, look, Dad, I'm sorry. The Bible doesn't say I have to clean my room, so I choose not to. We can't say that. Because the Bible has given us parents as an authority in our lives. So it's perfectly okay for my mum or dad to say, look, clean up your room. And we can't say when the, the police officer pulls us over on the road, um, it says nothing about speeding in the Bible. So I'm just going to speed on. Something that I have an issue with, because I have to admit that the, the Bible has put the public authorities in place to regulate the traffic on the road. And that is an authority that, that, has its, that takes its authority from God's word, takes its authority from God. And I think this is the biggest misunderstanding of Sola Scriptura. And it's kind of gone hand in hand and been used as an excuse or a justification for unhealthy individualism, which is something that we want to kind of fight against here at Calvary Chapel Freiburg, fight against here at Church at Five, because we recognize from the Bible 
that we aren't individuals who come together here to sit in chairs to kind of receive uh, some kind of performance, but rather God is actually putting us together to make us into one spiritual family. And you know, I've mentioned that here before. And if we kind of say there's no other authority in my life, no one else can say anything to me, it's just me, God, and the Bible, thank you very much, we kind of cut ourselves off from that possibility of actually having a real uh, family of faith here. And we end up appealing to our own subjective interpretation of the Scriptures. And I have to say, looking back at church history, that's the way many cults start. From somebody saying, this is the way I understand it, and I'm not going to let anyone else talk to me about this, and that's the way many cults start. And whenever we do that, whenever we elevate our own subjective individual conclusions about something outside of the body, outside of the church that God's put us into, we end up destroying the unity of the body. And we deny the right authority that God has ordained, that, that there are other people in our life, not only the church leaders, as I say, but everyone in the body that we have to be watching out for each other, taking care of each other, praying for each other, encouraging each other. And that means we have to be willing to accept that other people are going to speak into our lives. And I said it this morning, it's, it sounds controversial, but I hope you'll understand what I mean when I say it. The Bible was never meant to be read individually. It was never meant to be read individually that I just go off and sit on a mountain and read the Bible in that sense. Obviously, if, if you've got a nice mountain and a, and a portable Bible... Go and read it on a mountain. But I'm saying is, if you read the New Testament letters, they were all sent to churches, to bodies of believers gathered together. They were read aloud to the churches. Everyone was there. You see that, for example, in Ephesians 6, uh, where Paul, for example, says that the children should obey their parents. The children were in, in the church, listening, and, the, and the, the texts of the Bible were given into a community of the faithful. And that's the way God wants us to read his word, firstly and foremostly, primarily. And that's why traditionally the reading of the scripture has such an important place in a church service. But we want to take it further than that. Uh, really, I think that's a challenge for us in this time because we do come from an individualistic time. We want to be more and more opening up ourselves to be part of the family and reading the, the scripture together. And ironically, if we emphasize the autonomy of the individual believer, if we say, okay, it's just me and my Bible, that's what Sola Scriptura means, we don't end up putting the Scriptures as, as the ultimate authority. We end up putting our own autonomy, our own individualism on top. So Scripture is not meant to be read that way. As I finish up tonight, I just want to say, um, there, there are many more things that I could say and have said. Um, let me, let me perhaps finish by saying this. I think we should um, respond, we should see in what happened in the Reformation that men and women were willing to give their lives, if we talk about Sola Scriptura now, for the Word of God. That the Word of God might be available for the church to read in its own language, for, for, for men and women to read in their lives, that they might hear the Word of God. And I think that should maybe shake us awake to where we've taken the Word of God for granted. And that might mean that we've actually begun to ignore it because it's just so... I mean, we've got the app on our phone, but we don't really open the app. I don't know. But we don't want to take it for granted. We want to instead learn to love God's Word. We want to instead see that God's Word is beautiful, that it's healthy, that it speaks to us with clarity and authority, that it that it's, has 
efficacy, that is, it, it, it changes our lives. That's what the word of, makes the Word of God different in some sense to any other book. This Word of God is the living and active Word of God that can change lives and change nations. That means we want to pay careful attention to it. We want to say, if this is God's Word, then we need to be, we need to be paying attention to what God would say. Let me, let me conclude by reading to you a verse here that I read this morning as well, Matthew 4 verse 4, where Jesus shows us this by how he uses the word of God. This is when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness and uh, Satan comes to him. And we, we read how Jesus responds. Well, let's read what Satan says to him. The devil came to him and said, Matthew 4, verse 3, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And when, when Satan came to him and Jesus had said this verse, I mean, it sounds facetious, but it's worth pointing out. Jesus didn't pull out his smartphone and say, wait up, I'm just going to look up a verse now. He didn't pull out a scroll and say, hang on, I'm just going to get to Matthew. Uh, sorry, Deuteronomy. Matthew hadn't been written. Um, whoops. Jesus knew the word of God. He actually fulfilled the very word that he, or the very teaching that he gives us through Matthew's uh, report. Jesus knew the word of God. He had it in his mind, in his heart, on his lips. He had, as it were, put on the, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, which is how Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 6 as part of the, the armor of God. Jesus had, and as, if you go through, you'll see three times Jesus is able to pull straight out of his mind, the very word of God from Deuteronomy. And so Jesus indicates here that our spiritual life is maintained by daily nourishment with the word of God, just as our physical lives are maintained by daily nourishment with physical food. Jesus was able to withhold, to withstand the temptation, I believe, partly by the fact that he knew the word of God. But when temptation came, he had the word of God. He'd nourished himself, his spiritual life with the word of God, where therefore when spiritual temptation came, he didn't fall for it. We remember that Jesus was human, just like us. Therefore, he truly was tempted. If there was no possibility of Jesus falling into temptation, he couldn't be truly human. He couldn't be truly like us. This was real temptation. And Jesus used the real weapon of the word of God in order to fight the devil. And he shows us by his practice Nourish yourself daily by the word of God. Just as we need to physically nourish ourselves daily with physical food, otherwise at some point we'll just keel over. And so to neglect the regular reading of God's word is as bad for our souls as it is to neglect eating good, healthy food for our bodies. And perhaps maybe you want to take something away from that right now for your life where there's an issue where you think, I really need, to con- I really need help to conquer that. And why don't you take on board Jesus' word here, to feed on the word of God. So the appeal to Sola Scriptura, as we finish now, are you guys going to come back up? Yeah. The the appeal to Sola Scriptura, that's where it all started. The question of authority, you saw that with Luther. Appealing to that word, it led to the rediscovery of the simple, beautiful gospel that we're justified by God's grace alone, not on the basis of our own merit, what we have to earn. That, it's, that we're justified on the basis of Christ's finished work 
on the cross, that he's the sole mediator between God and man. He's the source of our righteousness. We're not reliant on purchasing um, indulgences and having merit, extra merit from the saints transferred into our account. It's received as a free gift by faith, simply placing our faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for us and not by any works that we have to do before God. And all of this, it's such a privilege because in being saved this way, we're actually showing how good, how glorious, how wonderful God is. We're contributing to God's glory alone. And all of these precious truths, which let's face it, are the most precious truths you will ever hear in your life, no matter what you're studying here in Freiburg, these were rediscovered because of Luther's commitment to go back to the sources, to go back to the very word of God, to place the word of God above any other human authority. So let me challenge you this evening. This is God's word. Let's pay careful attention to it. Let's carve out time to spend in the word of God. You have to carve it out. You won't find time. That's not how the modern world works. You have to say, I'm going to carve out time to spend it reading the Word of God. And let me say, as I said before, if the Bible wasn't meant to be read individually in that sense, and I think that's true, then why don't we get into a new habit of actually reading it together? I would really love that to happen, to actually have groups of us, maybe from Church at Five, maybe from other um, congregations here at Calvary Chapel, reading the Bible together, encouraging each other together, letting the Holy Spirit work amongst us as we do that. And when you, in, when you speak to strangers, or when you speak to strangers, or perhaps people who have come to, to Germany from other places, they don't know the Bible, they don't know God, then don't just hand them a tract. Um, I, don't mean, I, don't, I mean, handing them a tract is a good thing, but why don't you invite them to actually read the Bible with you? That is such a great thing to do. And you can do it. It's so, as I've written here at the end, it's so doable. It is so doable. We do have the time if we'll carve it out. And if we see by what happened in Luther's life, even though it took him nine years, nine years of calling on God, where are you? How do I find a gracious God? How do I find a merciful God? How do I find a God who loves me? Luther didn't let go of the Bible. And in the end, God allowed him through his spirit to rediscover this gospel. So applying ourselves to the word of God is so worth doing. Amen.